around 2014, one of Tookie Kavanaugh's work friends got an idea. He told her, me and my buddies are going to go to this comedy open mic night. You should come along. Tookie said, sure, why not? This simple outing turned out to be transformative for Tookie, who was a pretty introverted person. So I go with him at this now defunct open mic that was at the basement of Tasty Burger in Harvard Square. And we are watching these people go up to the microphone, say their things, and just absolutely eat shit. Like, every, oh my God. Like, it was terrible. And I, like, in the back of my mind, this switch flips. And I was like, oh, I could eat shit too. This isn't so bad. These people are just sharing their insights. They're telling their story. I can do that, too. It might sound strange, but sometimes you have to see somebody bomb on stage to realize this might be a place where you can feel very good about who you really are. From the Boston Globe and PRX, this is Love Letters. I'm Meredith Goldstein. So, all this season, we've explored stories of big change. We've heard from people who moved across the world, leaving loved ones behind. People who quit stable jobs and started their own pastry business. People who fell in love with someone brand new, at 80 years old. These stories of big change and evolution have all been very different. One thing many of them have in common is that willingness, that bravery, to take a leap. When people got better at truly seeing themselves, they opened up a world of discovery and possibility. Today's story, our last of season seven, is a great example of that. It's about a woman named Tookie Kavanaugh who put up with a lot of bullshit on the road to finding herself. Tookie's story is a love story about many things. Tookie, who describes herself as peak millennial, was born in the Boston area. Her mom is from the West Indies. Her dad is Jewish and Portuguese and from Pennsylvania. Tookie is actually a nickname that comes from her dad's side. She always tells people, Tookie rhymes with cookie. Comes from Hebrew. My dad's side of the family is like Sephardic and Portuguese. And uh, I, I have the name Matuk, which means sweet in Hebrew. And it kind of got switched around to Tookie. For the first four-ish years of my life, I lived in the Caribbean with my mom's parents because it's customary that a lot of people from the West Indies, when they're establishing their life in the U.S., send their kids down to live with extended family. So that was sort of the case. And my dad, who's just all American, was like, what is this? Didn't really understand this custom, but the formative years of my life were definitely spent with my grandparents. It was idyllic. It was a very peaceful time in my life. And people kind of have this image of Caribbean countries where it's like, 
impoverished and destitute. And it's just, it's not the case in a, in a lot of areas. People were just living their lives. It, it, it's comparable to any place, really. Tookie returns to the U.S. at four years old, not knowing much English. That's when things become a lot less idyllic, especially at school. It's a time when fitting in and being like everybody else is the best thing you can do. Tookie's background and experience means she just can't do that. My mom enrolled me into a bilingual school where I did make friends, but I kind of noticed I was a little bit different than the kids. It became apparent to me at lunch where it's like, why am I the only one sitting at this table versus the rest of my classmates? She switches to a parochial school, then middle school. At all of these institutions, there's this running theme where, because she isn't one thing, she isn't welcomed by any one particular group. Not even teachers who are supposed to be helping. It was tough. And that was a point at which my dad especially was like, assimilate, 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 which I always thought was kind of weird even as a kid, because I'm like, you married an immigrant. What did you think was going to happen? <laughs> but because of the time in which he grew up, he had really internalized that mindset of you come to America, you become American. So he really strictly implemented an English-only rule in the mm-hmm. house. And because of starting at this new school, already noticing that I sound a little bit different than my peers, I started reading a lot of Clifford the Dog out loud and imitating the news people, uh, news anchors, to try and kind of soften and eventually eliminate any sort of remnants of an accent I may have had. Wow. I, I, I'm i just trying to imagine a young person watching Boston news anchors and deciding how to talk. Yeah. You know what? It came back to bite me because when I was like not long after I came here, my family took a trip to Disneyland in California and we were waiting in line in Splash Mountain and the little boy uh, kept tugging at his mom like, I got to go potty, I got to go potty, I got to go potty. And in my mind, I'm like, what party is he talking about? This is what Boston does. Yes. <laughs> Just think you're speaking like Walburgian English. <laughs> yes. Not Elizabethan, definitely <laughs> Ode to Towny. Right. And so it took like I want to say, like, 20 years for me to realize, like, oh, my God, I learned English in a Boston accent. As her schools get bigger and more diverse, things get a little better. She finds a small group of friends, but it can feel like her best qualities are still invisible to most people. She's quiet, so teachers think she's disengaged. They don't treat her like the smart young woman she knows she is. How did it inform who you became at that age? The environment was such that I became a lot more withdrawn. Despite a lot of the other Black girls in my class insistence that I was not welcome and not one of them. Like, I distinctly remember this one time, one of the girls was, like, came up to me and she was like, you're not really Black. And I was like, uh, I don't know if you've consulted with some of our teachers. (laughs) (laughs) But we're kind of being treated a little similarly, a lot more similarly than you think. Let's talk about high school. What was that like? Oh, my God, the worst four years of my life. Like, save for maybe like two or three people, wish everybody they're the worst. 
someone at the alumni office found my email. I ignored the first one. They tried it again. And I was like, you have the wrong person. Please don't contact me again. Without having to go any into anything too painful, like what was terrible about it? I was thrust into this like hotbed of division and alienation. And on top of that, I had weight struggles. So when I was a kid between ages 7 and 15, I had a series of surgeries. And as a result of like the medication I was on, I gained a lot of weight. And so I, I faced a lot of bullying and ostracization for that. Coming into that environment where you have to be thin and white and moneyed to be accepted, I was none of those things. When you were growing up, what did you think your dating and relationship life was going to be like? You know, what, what, what were your hopes and fantasies? This was a time still in which we did not see love interests on TV that reflected actual women out in the world. It was either Disney princesses or Julia Roberts and her teeth on TV uh, and movies. And it's not something that I saw myself in. So I, I had to question, like, what kind of love would I have access to? Do you think that your parents got a sense of what was going on in terms of just some of the social hurdles and... Not necessarily, no. I never felt fully comfortable talking about that sort of thing. I really didn't think they would understand because my parents are both like very domineering personality types. They don't understand shyness. I'm very different from my parents. I'm very introverted. And so because I'm wired very differently from them, they, they were like, bullying? What is that? Can't relate. College in Boston seems to offer an opportunity for escape. One area where Tookie has really enjoyed herself is the arts. She's been taking piano, violin, and viola lessons. Her dad is a jazz musician, so it's in the blood. She decides to major in fine arts with plans to do oil paintings. She is a big fan of Gehende Wiley, probably best known today as the painter who did the official portrait of Barack Obama for the National Portrait Gallery. But here Tookie is in college, trying to pursue something she loves. And it feels kind of like high school did. She doesn't feel supported or seen by the people around her, including her teachers. I really couldn't nail down what it was that I was passionate about because I still was carrying around that weight of being being told, being made to believe that I was unintelligent and being made to feel as though I did not have the right to be ambitious. That was a very heavy weight for me. You know, some people's reaction would be, oh, you're playing the race card. But it's like, well, who's dealing the cards? Who made the deck? A few years into college, Tookie makes an important move. This withdrawn, introverted person tries her hand at theater. I don't know what happened, but... One August, when the uh, email came out to register for classes, I saw Acting One. And I was like, all right, Acting One, theater, let's do it. She starts acting and people like what she does. She likes what she does. She goes on stage, and she doesn't have to be withdrawn Tookie. The whole point is to grab the spotlight. I felt alive, finally. 
Like, even though I was portraying people who are not myself, I was like, oh my God, I, I am being seen. Do you remember one of the first performances or somebody, a character you portrayed where you had fun with it? Yeah, so my senior year, as part of my acting final in like an advanced acting class, I had a scene partner, of course, and I was portraying Blanche Dubois from A Streetcar Named Desire. Classic. Yeah, during that point where she's confronting Stella. Uh, so it was me and my scene partner, who's still a dear friend of mine to this day. And the only note that my acting teacher had for me was, eh, you should have moved the couch a little closer so we could hear you clearer. That's the only note. Speak up. Finally, some validation and encouragement. It only took about 20 years. At this point, as Tookie starts to find her voice in the performing arts, she starts dating someone she meets online. And as she is a peak millennial, online means online, like not an app. It was like MySpace adjacent where they had like online forums for people of color. So like BlackPlanet.com, Mi Gente for Latinos. Over time, the relationship with this man becomes, well, Tookie can explain. I just want to say, we have to normalize not having shitty boyfriends. Like, normalize no shitty boyfriends in your, like, late teens, early 20s. Because somehow, I fell into that. Like, right at the tail end of when I was in college. And it was at a point where I was still sort of finding myself, but not completely. And it was at a time, too, when, like, having a bad boy boyfriend was still glamorized in a lot of ways. And so I met this guy online, and it would seem we had a lot in common, but there was always a part of me that kind of felt like, he's with me for the wrong reasons, and he doesn't really love me. And he also resented me for the fact that even though my experiences with education were very, very traumatic, problematic, it's the fact that I had access to that education in the first place that he really disliked. And it was also at the time, like, I was really sick. Like, I was, I had spent about 12 days in the hospital at that point. And like we had kind of been on and off again and he was really stringing me along for the better part of a year just kind of like oh what but I can't really stop seeing these other women it was like ugh, it was gross and then we had this phone conversation where he was like well maybe when you're 100% healthy we can get back together when she does get healthy she does not return to this man thank goodness after college she's single working retail whatever day jobs seem okay to pay the bills and she's auditioning. She's trying to get roles in theater and short films, anything around Boston. Whatever confidence she found by acting in college is tested. Every actor expects to be told a lot of no's. But these are pretty specific. I went out and began auditioning for things, again, in the pre-Hamilton world in Boston. And I was met with a lot of, mm, well, we just didn't see this character being ethnic. We didn't really see her being urban. And I'm like, I sound like this. What is urban <laughs> about the way I said? I was imitating news anchors as a child. 
It's about three or four years into this auditioning and working day jobs when the friend from work invites Tookie to Tasty Burger in Harvard Square. This is where she gets to see those stand-up comics making people laugh, or eating shit, as she would put it. All of a sudden, in the basement of that burger place, she sees a path that changes everything. Her story continues when we come back. Okay, we're back. So Tookie Kavanaugh has a talent she wants to pursue, acting. But she's finding that without those Julia Roberts teeth, so to speak, she's not a first choice for big roles, even when she nails an audition. As Tookie says, this was the pre-Hamilton era, meaning diversity in casting wasn't talked about like it is today. But then she's exposed to stand-up comedy, and it's a revelation— Because with stand-up, it's not about filling somebody else's role. It's about creating your own. Despite the fact that I take myself very, very seriously, my whole life people have told me, oh, you're so funny. Oh my gosh, you should do comedy. And I had that in the back of my mind, and I'm thinking, like, I have this perspective. I have these things that have happened to me. I have these things that have shaped my worldview. And I have these stories to tell. And they are my stories. They're through my lens. Why don't I just tell them? At that stand-up night at Tasty Burger with her work friend, she starts to see her own stories, her own monologues, as material that just might work on a stage like this. And so a couple months later, he and some other friends accompanied me to my very first open mic. Where was that one? Sally O'Brien's in Somerville. What was your go-to for that first? It was a dating story. Hell yeah. What was it? Oh, my God. Okay. So basically, this was at a time when apps started to become a thing. And and it wasn't quite yet when we were at peak Tinder story saturation, but it was very much like on the edge of that. But a very good friend of mine who I worked with in retail uh, at a certain outfitter of urban clothing had told me that she met her now husband on, uh, should I name it? Sure. Plenty of fish. Okay. Which was a mistake for me to go on. And... So I have the app on my phone and I'm looking through and I get this message from this guy and he, (laughs) God, his only message to me was, you are a very beautiful, and he takes the word piglet but puts an N in front of it. And I was like, oh, okay, delete block report. (laughs) But it was so absurd that it was like, this is, This can't not be comedy. (music) 
So I take that story and, of course, take some of the material that was given to me, grant bestowed upon me from the site where I had met my ex, because that was a site because it was pre-DMs, but you could leave people notes. And um, someone left me a haiku on this site as a note, and it went, What up, Tookie Tookie? I ain't a rookie rookie. I'll eat that. Say it. (laughs) You don't have to say it. (laughs) Yeah. So, So I took that. And like the just the the bat shittery of everything that goes on on Plenty of Fish. And I was just kind of like, hey, this is what's out here, folks. This is what the dating landscape looks like, right? And to my surprise, it got laughs. These early experiences inspire Tookie to learn the craft of comedy. She pours through books about comedy writing. She takes what she learned in playwriting classes to figure out what kind of jokes land. Were you watching comedians in the world? Like, were you a fan of stand-up? Yes and no. It wasn't something that I avidly sought out, but I always appreciated good comedy. And I always appreciated comedy that's not easy. It's not just, oh, men are like this and women are like that, right? Comedy that's not simple. After that first night, how often do you start trying this? After that, it became a weekly thing. And then soon, a couple times a week, and then I started getting bookings. And people were like, hey, I mean, you know, it's a, it's like, hey, come do my show. It's in a sticky bar basement. But a booking's a booking. Tell me about the community you find yourself in at that point. Yeah. Me and another working comic in town equal one total black woman. But it's, it's, you know, it's small, in terms of comedians of color. But within the community, it's not so much color or gender. Is it, are you funny? Do you have good insights? Do you understand this craft? Are you a like-minded kind of person? Uh, Have you lived a life? And that, I think, is the main unifying factor for a lot of people, a lot of working comics. How is that different than all of these other communities that sort of kept you on the side, whether it be from a professor or from a peer? It was different because it's like, these people see me as a a person. And I'm their kind of person. So many years of my life were spent with just me being not someone's kind of person or not the majority group's kind of person, you know, and and it doesn't necessarily mean from like a a race or gender person, but just like, just different. I just very much was an oil slick in the puddle in a lot of ways. And isn't it often this way that when you feel good and nurtured in a great community, when you can show up as your full self, you exude a kind of attractive confidence I wasn't necessarily in search of love because I very much felt whole in that I was starting to love myself. I was only on the apps because it was funny to me at that point. Like, I was swiping right on ceiling fans and space ghosts and burritos. Good material at that point. Yeah. But it was very much like I didn't need that because the, the big change 
was that I finally, I did my best to mute out a lot of those voices that had told me that I'm nobody and that I'm not deserving of love. So I was at a point where I was like, it doesn't matter. I'm living a life and I found this place where it's like, okay, I'm not on stage in a traditional sense where I'm memorizing a script. I'm writing the script. These are my monologues. These are my insights. This is a slice of my life. But then what happens? So I'm at this show and a a comic friend of mine is on the lineup and uh, just kind of in passing, just like, oh, here's, here's my friend who's also on the show tonight. And I was like, ooh. <laughs> yeah, but I, I saw him and I was like, he's very straight. He's very different from the kind of guys that I was at least told to be interested in. In what way? In build and color and occupation in a lot of ways. Just very very different. But for some reason, I was just very, I was like, ooh. But then he walked off and I was like, oh, he thinks I'm repulsive. Like I, (laughs) I kind of freaked out. But then after the show, he approached me and I, I didn't think much of it at first, but because he was talking to me about my material, I was like, he heard me. And the way in which he's speaking to me too, was very much indicative to me that he didn't necessarily see my color or my shape first. He saw woman first. And that's huge. But it was very shocking to me because even though I was at a point where I was like, I accept myself. This is still a time when someone like me isn't leading woman material still. And so I did not think of myself as his potential love interest. And yet, he asked me out. There is one issue, though. Tookie has a rule about dating and comedy. Were you open to dating comedians? Hell no. Why? Oh my God, have you met comics? But this man who approaches her, it turns out he's done with comedy. He's planning to retire from stand-up to focus on his career in tech. Did you get to see him do stand-up? I did. And, and because he was also performing that night, it was like, oh, ooh, this is also like intellectual comedy. Because if he went up there and was like, hey, women be shopping, absolutely not. So he asks her out. A few times, actually, before she says yes. Do you remember your first date? I do. Because to this day, pizza and Nutella are very much my entire personality. So he took me out for pizza, and then we saw Inside Out in theaters. I'm very much of the mindset of like, don't limit your options of who to date. But I had had experiences where it's like, if I'm dating someone outside of my race, it's very much either like, oh, I've never been with a black woman before. I don't know. I I had a lot of questions, I think, about intentions of a lot of the, the men that I was dating. In this case, it was just very much like, he just really wanted to get to know me and hang out with me and figure out who I am. And we're kindred spirits in that he is even more introverted than I am. If you want a mental picture of him, Tookie says, he's the kind of guy who comes from a place with lots of cornfields. 
we come from completely different worlds and have just vastly different life experiences. And there are things about my life that I know that he'll never fully understand just because he's not in my shoes. Like we like we went out to dinner one time and he got there like five minutes ahead of me and was seated. And then I got there and the host is like, hey, how are you? Do you have a reservation? I was like, oh, my boyfriend's here. And she immediately escorted me to the first black person <laughs> in the restaurant. I don't, you're like, I don't know this man. I We looked at each other like, hey. <laughs> so, like, you know, for him, like, that's hilarious. And on its surface, yes, it is. But he doesn't under, like, there's a lot that he just doesn't, he, he'll never fully know. And he at least acknowledges that. But we, we, we have the same heart. He really cares about people and making an impact, on a positive impact on the world. We both share a love of knowledge. And, you know, we, we both struggle with, like, shyness. Did you move in together? How long did it take before this was like, we could marry each other, perhaps? It wasn't until my parents' refrigerator broke down that he was like, move in with me. Tookie had been living at home, keeping things affordable. Her parents' fridge breaks about two years into the relationship. For whatever reason, that spawns a conversation about taking the leap and moving in together. Remember, Tookie's mom is pretty traditional. I was spending the night a lot, so my mom was like, I guess you're having sex. (laughs) But it was sort of this tacit thing. But she was like, oh, you like this guy, huh? So in seeing how much I trust him, and seeing how much time we'd started to spend together, it was kind of like, yeah, go off. If it felt right to my mom, it felt right to me. Tookie's love for this man grows. Her love for her career in comedy grows. In 2019, things are getting good. I was at a point where I wasn't necessarily expecting a proposal. I think because a lot of the other women in my friend group have had long relationships, long engagements. So I was in no rush. And I was still sort of finding my footing career-wise, so it wasn't like a huge priority. And he tricked me because he and the owner of the comedy club were in cahoots. It was like a regular Sunday night show. And I was like, all right, uh, heading off. And he's like, no, 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 I'll come with you. I was like, you never come to shows. And he's like, yeah, but this guy's on the lineup and this guy's on the lineup. I saw the lineup and I was like, yeah, that's a good reason. And it wasn't until the end because at the time I needed an audition tape for a thing. And the owner was like, oh, yeah, I'm going to put you up at the end. And I was like, I'm following these guys. He's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. The audience will be primed. You'll get all the laughs. It'll be great. And I was like, okay. (laughs) But I went out there, did my thing. Afterwards, I was like, this is my closer. Yay, good night. And the the host comes up and he's like, actually, sit tight. Someone has something to say. Oh, shit. I know. And I was like, what? What? <laughs> and then, yeah, my soon-to-be fiance comes up and uh, is like, yeah. So I have a whole no public proposals because... What, were you okay? You were okay with it. I'm not a crier, but like I was weeping inside, but I was so taken aback. I was like, what's happening? Like I, and they 
found a seat for me to sit in in the front row. He does this whole thing. He does this spiel like material about like how to find ring size without your partner knowing. And then turned around and was like, I wait, so he did a bit before he asked? Yeah. And I was like, do I like this? I don't know if I like this. Oh, wait, no, I like this. Good thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> There's a lesson in this particular point, I think. Tookie had made a rule about dating comedians, but she was benefiting from him understanding her world. He knew how to use their shared background to surprise her, how to support her without getting in the way. In the past year, Tookie has opened for Maria Bamford, a comedian I love, at one of Boston's biggest theaters. She opened for Matteo Lane at Laugh Boston, where she's a regular. She was also cast as a lead in a movie. It's called Salesman. It filmed in Boston in 2020 and had a big screen release here in 2022. Tookie and her husband are celebrating two years of marriage. After all those years of not fitting in, of being misunderstood, of being mistaken for someone she was not, the last Tookie's getting on stage these days, they feel pretty good doing that time and time again, even at open mics and then slowly but surely graduating to bookings, it was very much like, yeah, I'm here. I'm being heard. I'm being seen. And and my perspective is of value. The things that have shaped me are real. And how I feel about them and how I express myself about these things is valid to people. And so that that's what changed. I wasn't necessarily in search of external validation in that regard, but to be able to say, like, I believe this thing. I believe in this thing. This is how I feel. And to be met with, like, yeah, nods and laughter. It's like, oh, okay. Yeah, this is this is real. Thank you so much for telling this story. Thank you for having me. You can find Tookie Kavanaugh's upcoming comedy dates by going to TookieKavanaugh.com. That's T-O-O-K-Y-K-A-V-A-N-A-G-H.com. Her movie Salesman is on Amazon Prime. You can find her on every social media platform, at Tookie Monster. Love Letters is a production of the Boston Globe and PRX. Today's episode was produced by Jesse Remedios and Scott Hellman. Ned Porter does our audio mixing, sound design, and mastering. Devin Smith and Maddie Mortel do our audience engagement. Love Letters illustrations by Ashanti Davis. Check them out on the Love Letters Instagram. Special thanks to Brian McGrory and Linda Henry. Our music is from APM. And if you like the show, please follow us on Apple Podcasts. You can always send us a letter. We are an advice column to loveletters at boston.com. We're online at loveletters.show. We were just kind of like nerdy and weird and insular and like into boy bands. Which ones? Oh, oh, Lord. I I was in sync all the way. Oh, but like... Good answer. Obsessed with Lance Bass, though, which Aww. I know. <laughs> I'm, hap- I'm happy for I'm him. I'm happy for him, too. <laughs> 
I'm Meredith Goldstein. Thanks for listening.